Welcome to Mintcast, the podcast by the Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. This is episode 431, recorded on Sunday, February 18th, 2024. Hanging in there, I'm Moss. Nuked and paved, I'm Joe. And being dizzy, I'm Majid. First up in the news, Linux Mint Monthly News, Google is Dying News, Samsung Defends Gen AI, India Bans Proton Mail, Nginx Core Dev Quits and Forks. In security and privacy, critical bootkit vulnerability affects most Linux distros, BitLocker smashed in minutes with a Pico SBC, and Mozilla helps you wipe your data. Then in our wandering, Joe plays games, Moss survives, and Majed finally gets Arch. In our innards section, we discuss the current Mintcast infrastructure. And finally, the feedback and a couple of suggestions. In the news, first we got Linux Mint monthly news from the Linux Mint blog. Uh, Linux Mint 20.3, the latest version of the upgrade tool, which features improved detection and handling of orphans slash foreign packages, was backported to Linux Mint 20.3. This makes the upgrade path from 20.3 to 21 much easier than before. The stable release for Linux Mint 21.3 was announced early this month. The upgrade path from 21, 21.1, and 21.2 was opened shortly after. We fixed a few regressions which had gone through the beta phase unnoticed. Mintstick couldn't handle space characters in the file path. Cinnamon screensaver showed a black screen in high DPI when all windows were minimized or no windows were open. When multiple users were logged in, Cinnamon session only showed a dialog window on quit slash lockout. Sorry, my screen just jumped, which it hadn't done in the past episode. Here we go. Where was I? Uh, when multiple users were logged in, Cinnamon Session only showed a dialog window on quit slash logout for the first user. In Wayland, it came to our attention that Wayland sessions in Linux Mint 21.3 could potentially affect Xorg sessions and triggered specific issues. Until these issues are fixed, we'd like to raise awareness on this and remind you that Wayland support in 21.3 is experimental. Although it is possible to switch from Wayland to Xorg with a simple logout, we recommend a reboot. Edge, the Edge ISO for Linux Mint 21.3, was released for the 6.5 kernel. The following regressions were also fixed in this ISO, support for loopback.config, invalid EFI slash boot slash boot x64.efi file, which broke Rufus support. Note that Rufus 4.4 also added a workaround, so now it works with LMDE6 and Linux Mint 1.3. For more info, there's a link in the show notes. LMDE6, all the new features from Linux Mint 21.3 were backported to LMDE6. Mint 22, the code name for Linux Mint 22 was chosen. It will be Wilma. Here's a sneak peek at one of its features that Cinnamon Edition will include a new Nemo Actions Organizer. You'll be able to organize your Nemo Actions in menus and submenus. This tool will support nested submenus, menu icons, separators, and drag and drop. You will also be able to rename actions and override their icon. 
discussion, gentlemen? So, I mean, <clears throat> I'm going to talk about it a little bit in the wanderings, but I am planning on installing um, the Edge ISO for Mint 21.3 on my ZenBook. Um, so I'll be quite looking forward to seeing how these things work. It's useful to know about the Rufus thing because, um, yes, I have noticed that in the past when I've uh, had uh, live ISOs, USBs, you know what I mean, um, with Rufus and Mint being a bit of a problem. So that's that should be cool. Um, Hopefully by next time, I can yeah. tell you what I think. Backported doesn't feel like the right word when they're talking about going to LMDE6, but I guess it does technically fit the definition since Debian Edition is upstream. Sideported? Sideported feels more accurate, but yeah, I guess backported does fit. Okie dokie. Majid. Okay then, so Google will no longer back up the internet. Cached web pages are dead. Dun, dun, dun. So this is from Ars Technica. Google will no longer be keeping a backup of the entire internet. Google search cache links have long been an alternative way to load a website that was down or had changed, but now the company's killing them off. Google search liaison Daniel Sullivan confirmed the feature removal in, in an, I'm not going to call it X, in a Twitter post saying that the feature was meant for helping people access pages way, when way back you often couldn't depend on a page loading. These days things have greatly improved, so it was decided to retire it. It was only Twitter when it was alive, Majid. It's not alive anymore. Okay, fair enough. Uh, the feature has been appearing and disappearing for some people since December, and currently we don't see any cache links in Google Search. But now you can still build your own cache links, even without the button, just by going to, and there's a link in the show notes, plus a website URL or just typing cache, plus a URL, in, URL into Google Search. For now, the cached version of Ars Technica still seems to still work. All of Google's support pages about cache sites have been taken down. Cache links used to live under the drop-down menu next to every search result on Google's page. As the Google web crawler scoured the internet for new and updated web pages, it would also save a copy of whatever it was seeing. That quickly led Google to having backup of basically the entire internet using what was probably an uncountable number of petabytes of data. Google is in the era of cost savings now, so assuming Google can just start deleting cache data, it can probably free up some resources. Cache links were great if the website was down or quickly changed, but they also gave some insight over the years about how the Googlebot web crawler views the web. The pages aren't necessarily rendered like you would expect. In the past, pages were text only, but sorry, the Googlebot learned about media and other rich data like JavaScript. There are a ton of specialized Googlebots now. A lot of Googlebot details are shrouded in secrecy to hide from SEO spammers, but you can learn a lot by investigating what cached pages look like. In 2020, Google switched to mobile by default. So for instance, if you visit the cached ours link from earlier, you get the mobile site. If you run a website and want to learn more about what a site looks like to see a Google bot, to it looks like to a Google bot, you can still do that though only for your own site from the search console. The death of cached sites will mean the internet archive has a larger burden of archiving and tracking changes on the world's web pages. Are we I, really surprised? No, I'm not surprised. And I think... I mean, to be completely honest, I do kind of get where they're coming from in the sense that uh, people's mobile data, people's uh, fiber connections, et cetera, et cetera, have got so much better over the last decade that it's less of a thing really, isn't it? You know, uh, trying to um, get, uh, because it was basically useful for if you had a poor data connection. That's At least that's how I saw it. Um, and now when you have decent data connections um, and, you know, Google's got to make money 
um, and if you can cut, cut some costs here so that it can then redeploy those servers for its AI stuff, which is where it obviously thinks the money is, um, doesn't surprise me at all, really. That, to be honest, I think it's fair enough. Google is trying to kill something else. Who is surprised? Yeah. Well, yeah, well, that as well, I suppose, isn't it? I suppose it's not as up-to-date or as, you know, um, well-funded, but they're still the Wayback Machine and Archive.org. They are the same thing, Joe. Yes. <laughs> the Wayback Machine is the front end for Archive.org, right? Correct? Or the, the Archive.org is the back end. Wayback Machine, something like that. I mean, yeah. to be honest, it probably also makes life a lot easier for a lot of social media users. Uh, if but Google has a lot more money than Archive, too. Yeah. Yes, but they're not. But they're a profit company. They're not a public service. What we're saying is, is uh, donate to Archive.org. community-driven thing. They're out to make money. If, gonna, if this is costing money. Definitely. Yeah. I do every month. Yeah, I would agree with that. Let's move on, Majid. No such thing as a real p picture. Samsung defends AI photo editing on the Galaxy S24. So this is from TechRadar. Like most technology conferences in recent months, Samsung's latest Galaxy Unpacked event was dominated by conversations surrounding AI. From two-way call translation to gesture-based search, the Galaxy S24 series launched with several AI power tricks up its sleeve. One particular feature is already raising eyebrows. Set to debut on the S24 and its siblings, generative edit will allow users to artificially erase, recompose, and remaster parts of an image in a bit to achieve photographic perfection. This isn't a new concept, and any edits made using this generative AI tech will result in a watermark and metadata changes. But the seamlessness with which the Galaxy S24 enables such edits has left, understandably left some unpacked goers concerned. Samsung, however, is confident that its new generative edit feature is ethical, desirable, and even necessary in today's misinformation-filled world. In a revealing interview with TechRadar, Samsung's head of customer experience, Patrick Shomay, defended the company's position on AI and, AI and its implications. There was a very nice video by Marcus Brownlee last year on the moon picture, a debate about what constitutes a real picture. And actually, there is no such thing as a real picture. As soon as you have sensors to capture something, you reproduce what you're seeing, and it doesn't mean anything. There is no real picture try to define a real picture by saying, I took, is that real? Was it all filters? There's no real picture, full stop. But still, questions around authenticity are very important, shall may continued. And we, Samsung, go about this by recognizing two consumer needs, two different customer intentions. Neither of them are new, but generative AI will accept, accelerate one of them. One intention is wanting to capture the moment, wanting to take a picture that is as accurate and complete as possible. To do that, we use a lot of AI filtering, modification, optimization to raised shadows, reflections, and so on. But we are true to the user's intention, which was to capture the moment. Then there's another intention, which is wanting to make something. When people go on Instagram, they add a bunch of funky black and white stuff, they create a new reality. Their intention isn't to recreate reality, it's to make something new. So in that sense, generative edit isn't a totally new idea. Generative AI tools will accelerate that intention exponentially in the next few years. So there's a big customer need to distinguish between the real and the new. That's why a generative edit feature adds a watermark and edits the metadata and we're working with regulatory bodies to ensure people understand the difference. On the subject of AI regulation, Shomay said that Samsung is very aligned with the European regulations on AI, noting that governments are right to express early concerns about the potential implications of widespread AI use. The industry needs to be responsible and it needs to be regulated, added Shomay, noting that Samsung is actively working on that. 
And new technology is amazing and powerful, but like anything, can be used in good and bad ways. So it's appropriate to think deeply about the bad ways. As for how generative edit will end up being used on Samsung's new phones, only time will tell. Perhaps the future will simply help average smartphone users, i.e. those unfamiliar with Photoshop, get the photos they really want rather than facilitate mass photo fakery. Indeed, it still remains to be seen whether generative AI tech as a whole will be a benefit or a hindrance to society as we know it. So I have some thoughts on this. Um, firstly, um, I'm, the generative AI stuff, it's a Google thing rather than a Samsung thing. Um, Google's, uh, you know, they the ones who started off with Magic Eraser, Magic Editor, all this kind of stuff. And Samsung is just using it to package their um, devices. So in that sense, it's, uh, you know, it's already an issue. Um, it's not just because well, the S24 is coming out. The second thing is that there's actually an interesting point that he makes, which is that people have two different, well, people have multiple different intentions when they are taking a picture or making a video or something like that. I, I get the uh, anxiety about making something which didn't actually happen. You know, like the, was it, uh, the face touch-up thing where, you know, if, if people, you can get all the different smiling faces from all different photos, put them all together, so it looks like everybody smiled at the same time when that didn't actually happen. Um, and so I get that. And putting that in the hands of people, um, I mean, you know, you, you, you can imagine the things that can go wrong. Well... But then again, a lot of people aren't really doing that. A lot of people are doing the Instagram thing of trying to make content. And if you're making content, then, um, you know, it's just, it's just, you're just democratizing something that was already available in Photoshop um, or LumaFusion or whatever. Yeah. People's concern is, you know, deep fake, information, yeah, thing, things like that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's always been a concern now people can just do it faster okay so be more concerned but you know it's been around since we were using film i mean people were editing pictures manually to to add things to them how many years ago forever ago basically since pictures started being a thing i will point out it's great to be able to remove a photo bomber from your picture <laughs> Unless it's Keanu Reeves, I mean, as I said, in. it is. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I uh, I know on the Verge, um, there's been a lot of discussion in their podcast about you know what is a picture and a lot of anxieties about you know this is just going to lead to an avalanche of deep fake stuff and things like yes. that. Well, well I that mean, stuff I, has already. Started. I think it will when where, yeah, but I think it will when Apple does it. I don't think it's going to be as big a deal uh, on the Android side because. Just the now, you know, the kind of um, you know, let's be honest. Apple sets the stage for a lot of these things, isn't well, it? Well, but it does not command the uh, the market. They they may think that they're they're operating the whole thing, but right now, Android is significantly ahead of uh, iPhone in terms of market worldwide. Market. True, but not that's not as close in the in the West, is it? In the West, it's a lot more fifty fifty. Yes, if you go to the, I don't, want to call, I don't want to say developing world, but the emerging markets of India, China, Brazil, whatever. Yeah, Android rules the roost, clearly. No. Um, but in the, but in what was, you know, normally thought of as the West, Europe, North America, things like that. It's about, you know, Apple is, 
still the one that people follow, I think. I don't like it, but I think that's what it is. Well, moving back to the topic, um, you know, Samsung is trying to do the right thing by adding the watermark and adding the metadata changes. But, you know, that's really not going to do anything. You can't tell me that somebody isn't going to root and rom their system and remove that and still get their photos edited well, the actually, they want to. Well, exactly. And in fact, interestingly, you can. Um, so uh, someone showed this actually in a YouTube video. You could, you know, take a photo, use the Gen AI, uh, Gen, generative AI stuff. You'll put a watermark in the corner. You can save that. And then you can then go to Magic Editor <laughs> and then erase the watermark. So, you know, if you want to, you can do all these things, you know. Um, I just think it's more a, a reflection of the um, uh, televisualization of culture. You know, everything, want, you know, we want our lives to be like a TV program. You know, we want our uh, memories to have like backing music to it. And, do you know what I mean? It's just, I, 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 and so. Wait, your memories don't have right backing music that. to there it? Are, well, yeah, they have in my head, but not in reality. Ah. Do yours happen in reality as well? Sometimes. That's what phones are for. Depends on if I'm in an elevator. <laughs> okay. Let's move along, Joe. Okay. Nginx core developer quits project and security dispute starts free Nginx fork. This is from Ars Technica. A core developer of Nginx, currently the world's most popular web server, has quit the project, stating that he no longer sees it as a free end open source project for the public good. His fork. Free Nginx is going to be run by developers and not corporate entities, writes Maxim Dwanin, and will be free from arbitrary corporate actions. And it just jumps. Dwanin is one of the earliest and still most active coders on the open source Nginx project and one of the first employees of Nginx Inc., a company created in 2011 to com commercially support the steadily growing web server. Nginx is now used on roughly one-third of the world's web servers ahead of Apache. Nginx Inc. was a acquired by Seattle-based networking firm F5 in 2019. Later that year, two of Nginx's leaders, Maxim Konovalov and Igor Sesyov, were detained and interrogated in their homes by armed Russian state agents. Sesyov's Former employer internet firm Rambler claimed that it owned the rights to Nginx's source code as it was developed during Sysyov's tenure at Rambler, where Downen also worked. While the criminal charges and rights do not appear to have materialized, the implication of a Russian company's intrusion into a popular open source piece of the web's infrastructure caused some alarm. Sysyov left F5 and Nginx project in early 2022. Later that year, due to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, F5 discontinued all operations in Russia. Some Nginx developers still in Russia formed Hanji, developed in large part to support Nginx users in Russia. Downen technically stopped working for F5 at that point, too, but maintained his role in Nginx as a volunteer, according to Downen's mailing list post. Downen writes in his announcement that new non-technical management at F5 recently decided that they know better how to run open source projects. In particular, they decided to interfere with security policy Nginx uses for years, ignoring both the policy and developer's position. While it was quite understandable, given their ownership, 
Downer wrote that it means he was no longer able to control which changes are made in Nginx, hence his departure and fork. Comments on Hacker News, including one by the purported employee of F5, suggest Downen opposed the assigning of published CVEs, Common Vulnerabilities Exposures, to bugs in aspects of QUIC. While Quick is not enabled in most Nginx setup, it is included in the application's mainline version, which according to the Nginx documentation contains the latest features and bug fixes and is always up to date. The commenter from F5, MZ Megazone, seemingly the principal security engineer at F5, notes that a number of customers slash users have the code in production, experimental or not, and adds that F5 is a CVE numbering authority, CNA. Down and expanded on F5's actions in a later mail response. The most recent security advisory was released despite the fact that the particular bug in the experimental HTTP3 code is expected to be fixed as a normal bug as per the existing security policy and all the developers, including me, agree on this. And while the particular action isn't exactly very bad, the approach in general is quite problematic. Asked about the potential for name confusion and trademark issues, Downen wrote in another response about trademark concerns. I believe they do not apply here, but I and all, I am not a lawyer, and the name aligns well with project goals. <clears throat> MZ Megazone confirmed the relationship between security disclosures and Downen's departure. All I know is he objected to our decision to assign CVEs was not happy that we did, and the timing does not appear coincidental. MZ Megazone wrote on Hacker News, he later added, I don't think having the CVE should reflect poorly on Nginx or Maximum. I'm sorry he feels the way he does, but I hold no ill will toward him and wish him success seriously. Downen, reached by mail, pointed to his mailing list responses for clarification. He added, essentially F5 ignored both the project policy and joint developer's position without any discussion. Megazone wrote to ours, nothing that he only spoke for himself and not F5, noting that he only spoke for himself and not F5, stating it's an unfortunate situation, but I think we did the right thing for the users in assigning CVEs and following public disclosure practices. Rational people can disagree, and I respect Maxim, has his own view on the matter, and hold no ill will toward him or the fork. I wish it hadn't come to this, but I respect the choice was his to make. A representative for F5 wrote to ours that F5 is committed to delivering successful open source projects that require a large and diverse community of contributors, as well as applying rigorous industry standards for assigning and scoring identified vulnerabilities. We believe this is the right approach for developing high secure software for our customers and community, and we encourage the open source community to join us in this effort. Any thoughts? Isn't it? Isn't this a, a tale as old as time when it comes to Linux and open source? Well, People yeah, forking? yeah. I mean, a lot of your your hard forks on stuff come because of a difference of opinion. So, I guess this is par for the course. We need to get Angela Lansbury to sing that. Yes, I I I I, <laughs> I, I got that reference as I was saying it. I thought to myself, "Tale as old as time." Anyway, all right. Well, let's skip Beauty and the Beast and go on to the next article, Majid. Okay, so the Indian government moves to ban proton mail after a bomb threat. So this is, the article that I'm using is one from Android Central, but it's uh, widely on a lot of the uh, Indian news press, NDTV, things like that as well. 
Indian government's information technology ministry issued an order to block proton mail in the region. The move comes after a bomb threat was sent to schools in Chennai via proton mail account. Proton mail is still active in the country as a writing, but it remains to be seen if it will continue to be the case. We here have often mentioned that Proton Mail is the best choice if you want an end-to-end encrypted email platform, and the nature of the service means it is inevitably used by bad actors. On February 8th, a bomb threat was sent to 13 schools in Chennai, city in the state of Tamil Nadu, southern India. The threat turned out to be a hoax, and the Tamil Nadu police found that the email was sent via Proton Mail account. Unable to trace the IP address of the sender and failing to get assistance from Interpol, the Tamil Nadu police put in a request to India's Ministry of Electronics and Information Technology to block access to proton mail within the country, according to the Hindustan Times. That request was granted today with the government authority issuing an order to block the service in the region. Enforcement will be carried out by the Department of Telecommunications, which will likely entail delisting proton mail from App Store and Play Store. That said, the website is still working as of writing and the app is listed on both storefronts. This is the first instance when the government went after the Swiss-based Proton AG, Proton VPN pulled its servers out of the country following a controversial 2022 ruling by the Indian government mandating providers to maintain usage logs. I remember when we covered that, actually. As for the Proton mail ban, Proton AG sent a statement to Hindustan Times that it was working with the government over the issue. We are currently working to resolve the situation. We are investigating how we can best work together with the Indian authorities to do so. We understand the urgency of the situation and are completely clear that our services are not to be used for doing for illegal purposes. We routinely remove users who are found to be doing so and are willing to cooperate with whatever possible wherever possible within international cooperation agreements. The issue is is that Proton AG didn't hound over the IP address to Indian authorities. As the email provider told Hindustan Times, it cannot do that under Swiss law. Proton cannot answer directly to foreign law enforcement authorities, but Swiss authorities may assist foreign authorities with requests, provided they are valid under international assistance procedures and determined to be in com- in compliance with Swiss law. The government's move is in line with the recent policy that has targeted services with end-to-end encryption. A host of encrypted apps were blocked at the start of last year, including Threema, Element, Wikimedia, SafeSwiss, and the government is going after WhatsApp to disable end-to-end encryption. Although it's not exactly clear how that would even work. Proton AG clearly agrees with this with that sentiment as it said this to the Hindustan Times, we condemn a potential block as a misguided measure that only serves to harm ordinary people. Blocking access to Proton is an ineffective and inappropriate response to the reported threats. I will not prevent cyber criminals from sending threats with another email service. I will not be effective if the perpetrators are located outside of India. So the reason I put this in is that this is just another, um, you know, if people think that uh, governments in the West uh, are overreach, they don't, don't like it. Um, it's getting very authoritarian, and I'm I'm not surprised. Actually, I wouldn't be surprised if VPNs start becoming mm. uh, good luck with that in one. India as well. Yes, I cannot access um, Pro- I cannot access Proton from the school Wi-Fi where I work. <laughs> it's been blocked there. It's really interesting what they block. They block eBay, but not Amazon. <laughs> Anyhow, yeah. Well, so this more. is just uh, so. This is just. Just a couple of things. Another here. example of uh, Indian government overreach. Now, now, most of this, you know, okay, they can try and block things that are end-to-end encrypted, but we'll, we'll always find, people will always find a way about that. But the, 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 the visual that they're trying to provide here is, is kind of bothering me because it's untrue, and there are people that will 
probably believe it. And that's how they're going to get their support. If you look at the quote, we condemn a potential block as a misguided measure that only serves to harm ordinary. Okay. I read, I, I read it wrong the first time. So the block would harm ordinary people. So that's perfectly fine. Man. But yeah, I mean, bad yeah, actors exactly. are going to find a way to get around this. I mean, you say, oh, no VPNs. Okay. How are you going to stop me from using a VPN? Okay, you actually found a way to block VPNs. It's great. I'll use Wirecard. Oh, that doesn't work. I'll use SSH forwarding. Mm. See, not so, all of us are into that deep of no. But of, but but the point is that if you are a bad actor, you exactly, will go through right. all of that. It, the, what will ha- what will happen is that the the stand the, the 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 ordinary Joe on the street who would have you know is now going to have he's going to look and going to go. It's not worth the hassle. I don't really care. Whatever and is now basically giving all this data to the government for them to spy on. Exactly. Right. It's the bad actors that will still get away with everything. And then the people who need to protect themselves, you know, everybody that won't be able to, that's the only thing. Yeah, exactly. It's another example of the dystopian world which we live in. And that's the news. Insecurity and privacy, a critical vulnerability affecting most Linux distros allows for boot kits. From Ars Technica, Linux developers are in the process of patching a high-severity vulnerability that in certain cases allows the installation of malware that runs at the firmware level, giving infections access to the deepest parts of the device where they're hard to detect or remove. The vulnerability resides in Shim which in the context of Linux is a small component that runs in the firmware early in the boot process before the operating system is started. More specifically, this shim accompanying virtually all Linux distributions plays a crucial role in Secure Boot, a protection built into most modern computing devices to ensure every link in the boot process comes from a verified, trusted supplier. Successful exploitation of the vulnerability allows attackers to neutralize this mechanism by executing malicious firmware at the earliest stages of the boot process, before the unified extensible firmware interface firmware has loaded and handed off control to the operating system. The vulnerability, tracked as CVE-2023-40547, is what's known as a buffer overflow, a coding bug that allows attackers to execute code of their choice. It resides in a part of the shim that processes booting up from a central server on a network using the same HTTP that the web is based on. Attackers can exploit the code execution vulnerability in various scenarios, virtually all following some form of successful compromise of either the targeted device or the server or network the device boots from. An attacker would need to be able to coerce a system into booting from HTTP if it's not already doing so, and either be in a position to run the HTTP server in question or MITM traffic to it, Matthew Garrett, a security developer and one of the original Shim authors, wrote in an online interview. An attacker, physically present or who has already compromised root on the system, could use this to subvert secure boot, add a new boot entry to a server they control, compromise the shim, execute arbitrary code, end quote. Stated differently, these scenarios include acquiring the ability to compromise a server or perform an adversary in the middle impersonation of it to target a device that's already configured to boot using HTTP, already having physical access to a device or gaining administrative control by exploiting a separate vulnerability. 
While these hurdles are steep, they're by no means impossible, particularly the ability to compromise or impersonate a server that communicates with devices over HTTP, which is unencrypted and requires no authentication. These particular scenarios could prove useful if an attacker has already gained some level of access inside a network and is looking to take control of connected end-user devices. These scenarios, however, are largely remedied if servers use HTTPS, the variant of HTTP that requires a server to authenticate itself. In that case, the attacker would first have to forge the digital certificate the server uses to prove it's authorized to provide boot firmware to devices. The ability to gain physical access to a device is also difficult and is widely regarded as grounds for considering it to already be compromised. And of course, already obtaining administrative control through exploiting a separate vulnerability in the operating system is hard and allows attackers to achieve all kinds of malicious objectives. That said, obtaining the ability to execute code during the boot processes before the main operating system starts constitutes a major escalation of whatever access an attacker already has. It means the attacker can neutralize many forms of endpoint protection designed to detect compromises. As such, the attack allows for the installation of a bootkit, the term for malware that runs prior to the OS. Unlike many bootkits, however, the one created by exploiting CVE-2023-40547 won't survive the wiping or reformatting of a hard drive. Garrett explained, in theory, this shouldn't give an attacker the ability to compromise the firmware itself, but in reality, it gives them code execution before exit boot services, the handoff between the firmware still running the hardware and the OS taking over, and that means a much larger attack surface against the firmware. The usual assumption is that only trusted code is running before exit boot services. I think this would still be called a boot kit. It's able to modify the OS bootloader and kernel before execution but it wouldn't be fully persistent. If you wipe the disk, it'd be gone. Fixing the vulnerability involves more than just excising the buffer overflow from the shim code. It also requires updating the secure boot mechanism to revoke vulnerable bootloader versions. That in turn raises some level of risk. Paul Asadorian, principal security evangelist at Eclipsium and author of a blog post that raised awareness of the vulnerability explained, Users could run into a situation where a DBX, revocation list, update is being applied to their system that defines the currently installed bootloader as invalid in Secure Boot. In this case, upon reboot, Secure Boot would halt the boot process. As long as the user can get into their BIOS slash UEFI settings, this can be remedied by temporarily disabling Secure Boot. If the user has set a BIOS password, this would make a recovery extremely difficult. The Linux utility FD... FWUPD has facilities to update the Secure Boot DBX and will provide warnings to the user if the currently installed bootloader is in pending DBX update. Another challenge in updating, Asadorian said, involves the finite amount of space reserved for storing revocations in a portion of the UAFI known as the DBX. Some lists could contain more than 200 entries that must be appended to, to the DBX, with many shims capping the space at 32 kilobits, this capacity would be close to running out of space. Yet another step in the patch process is signing newly patched shims using a Microsoft third-party cer certificate authority. Oh, we would love that. Developers overseeing Linux shims have released the patch to individual shim developers who have incorporated into each version they're responsible for. They now have released those versions to Linux distributors who are in process of making them available to end users. The risk of successful exploitation is mostly limited to extreme scenarios as noted earlier. 
the one scenario where exploitation is most viable, when devices receive boot images over an unencrypted HTTP server, is one that should never happen in 2024 or the past decade for that matter. That said, the harm from successful exploitation is serious and is the reason for the severity rating of 9.8 out of a possible 10. People should install patches promptly once they become available. Update your stuff. Physical access is king. I kind of understood that article. Patch, patch, patch. <laughs> well, obviously, well, since none of us understood it, we can't discuss it. Why don't we? Well, I was going to say, the... I was going to say that, that that obviously makes at least one of us. <laughs> oh, I say Let's kind move on of. To the next story, Joe. Okay, BitLocker encryption broken in forty-three seconds with sub ten-dollar Raspberry Pi Pico. He can be sniffed when using an external TPM. Kind of hot. This is from Tom's Hardware. BitLocker is one of the most easily accessible encryption solutions available today, being a built-in feature of Windows 10 Pro and Windows 11 Pro that's designed to secure your data from prying eyes. However, YouTuber Stack Smashing demonstrated a colossal security flaw with BitLocker that allowed him to bypass Windows BitLocker in less than a minute with a cheap sub-$10 Raspberry Pi Pico, thus gaining access to the encryption keys that can unlock protected data. After creating the device, the exploit to only took 43 seconds to steal the master key. I have like five of those somewhere around. To do this, the YouTuber took advantage of a known design flaw found in many systems that feature a dedicated trusted platform module or TPM. For some configurations, BitLocker relies on an external TPM to store critical information such as the platform configuration registers and volume master key. Some CPUs have this built in. For external TPMs, the TPM key communications across an LPC bus with the CPU to send it the encryption keys required for decrypting the data on the drive. Stack Smashing found that the communication lanes, LPC bus, between the CPU and the external TPM are completely unencrypted on boot up, enabling an attacker to sniff critical data as it moves between the two units, thus stealing the encryption keys. You can see his method in the video on YouTube. With this in mind, the YouTuber decided to test an attack on a 10-year-old laptop with BitLocker encryption. His specific laptop's LPC bus is readable through an unpopulated connector on the motherboard, located right next to one of the laptop's M.2 ports. This same type of attack can be used on newer motherboards that leverage the external TPM, but these typically require more legwork to intercept the bus traffic. To read data off the connector, the YouTuber created a cheap Raspberry Pi Pico device that could connect to the unsecured connector just by making contact with a metal pads protruding from itself. The Pico was programmed to read the raw ones and zeros off of the TPM, granting access to the volume master key stored on the volume. Stack Smashing's work demonstrates that Windows BitLocker as well as external TPMs aren't as safe as many think because the data lanes between the TPM and CPU are unencrypted. The good news is that this, it, this attack method, which has been known for some time, is relegated to discrete TPMs. If you have a CPU with a built-in TPM, like the ones in modern Intel and AMD CPUs, you should be safe from this security flaw, since all TPM communication occurs within the CPU itself. Once again, physical access is king. I mean, it's interesting, and granted it doesn't work on newer stuff, but still. I think I'm going to have to look up this guy's video just to see how he did it. Yeah, they've got good pictures on the uh, article as well, showing what a Raspberry Pi Pico looks like. We'll be 
Joe knows what that looks like. Yeah, I got like five of them. It's They're also awesome. completely unsurprising as well. What, did I have five of them? It's also completely unsurprising. Well, yes, <laughs> that and the fact that it wasn't that difficult to do. Okay. Moss. Moving on. Mozilla's new, new, Mozilla's new service tries to wipe your data off the web for a price. From Mozilla blog. Mozilla is introducing a new paid subscription privacy monitoring service called Mozilla Monitor Plus for $8.99 a month under its annual subscription. Mozilla says it will automatically keep a lookout for your information at over 190 sites where brokers sell information they've gathered from online sources like social media sites, apps, and browser trackers. And when your info is found, it will automatically try to get it removed. Mozilla Monitor Project Product Manager Tony Sonato told The Verge in an email that Mozilla partners with a company called OneRep to perform these scans and subsequent takedown requests. While requests usually take between 7 and 14 days to process, he says sometimes information can't be removed. Mozilla will keep trying, he added, but will also give Plus members instructions for attempting removal themselves. A GIF showing the process of setting up a scan. Oh, that, that should not have been read, and that should not have been read, so I'm not going to read it. Basic Monitor members will get a free scan and one-time removal sweep, plus continual monthly data broker scans afterward, Mozilla says. The paid subscription builds on the free dark web monitoring of Mozilla Monitor, previously Firefox Monitor, a service Mozilla debuted in 2018. Mozilla has offered other privacy-focused services in the last few years, such as Mozilla VPN and Firefox Relay. Mozilla says its data broker scans can find details online like your name and current and previous home addresses, but it adds that it could go as deep as criminal history, hobbies, or your kid's school district. Services like this are fairly common, but they're not all that well-known to most people, and searching for them is likely to turn up sketchy scam sites as it is legitimate service providers like, for instance, Delete Me. That makes it difficult to suss out trustworthy companies, which is really where Mozilla's reputation as a privacy-first subsidiary of the open-source nonprofit Mozilla Foundation could help. Mozilla Monitor Plus is available now for $8.99 per month, while standard Mozilla Monitor remains free. As a counterpoint, the Linux experiment reported in his video on the 17th of February that Mozilla has laid off 60 employees, 5% of their workforce, and that most of the layoffs were staff working on the Monitor Plus project. Maybe they're going to be using AI more? Maybe. I, I'm quite interested in this, actually. I'm actually quite interested in this. Uh, I've, I've looked into like services like Delete Me in the past, but um, yeah, yeah it's a bit expensive, mind. Those AI services mind. have been around for a long time, but I, I guess it's nice to see something that will monitor it monthly for you. O almost like credit yeah. monitoring, but, you know, for the World Wide Web. Well, they keep saying eight ninety nine a month. They are going to build you annually, not monthly. So, whatever that is, times twelve. Hmm. Seems like a good idea, and it would be good for them to have a steady revenue source, other than you know Google. Yeah, I wish it weren't so expensive. I did run uh, the free uh, scan on it, and it didn't seem to be all that helpful because it just looked like I had to do so much work to do it myself as opposed to paying them to do it and if it was 4.99 or 5.99 i'd probably sign up for it do they accept bitcoin <laughs> <laughs> i have no okay well that about wraps it up for security let's move on
Bi-weekly wanderings. We're starting with Joe. Oof, I'm going to be talking a lot this show. Like a lot, a lot. But anyways, um, I pulled out my 8-bit Doe controller that I have the 3D printed phone mount attached to so that I could test out some of the gaming in regards to my new phone, the S24 Ultra. I set up my usual with uh, NES and Sega Genesis. Finally finished my speed run of the original Super Mario Bros. Definitely did not set any records. And I did need to use the save states, but uh, definitely happy with the outcome and happy I got that done. Um, I also set up my all-time favorite game, the Genesis version of Shadowrun. Uh, for that one, I decided to try something a little bit different and use Dex and one of the portable monitors that I got for Christmas. It's only like 11 inches, really cool. Uh, after changing the settings for RetroArch, um, I, I got it to full screen and it looks really good. It plays really smooth as well. Um, now, a couple of times uh, I, I've really considered buying a Nintendo Switch just to get the remastered version of Grand Theft Auto Vice City. But um, I, I also found out that you can get it on Android for free if you have Netflix. And I do. I also decided to play that with Dex, and it looks brilliant. It is a bit hard to control, but the game always was. Um, <clears throat> the whole game looks brilliant. Uh, between the emulation and, and the ROMs that I already have, along with the excellent feeling of the 8-bit Doe controller and the RetroPie I have set up, I think I'll be good to go in the classic gaming department for a while. Now, with that Grand Theft Auto Vice City, um, yeah, the remastered version really does look a lot better. Like, a lot. But uh, after a couple of days of playing it, it started like dying randomly. And I'm not sure why. I haven't found out yet. I might play five or ten minutes and then the game would just shut off and I'd get dumped back to the main page of my phone. Uh, whether or not it was hooked to Dex. Now, <clears throat> the other day um, I turned so, on. I, so I just wanted to just make a, uh, want to ask a question. Go ahead. Or oh, make a point yep, really. Yep. Shows exactly how powerful these... Um, you know, the new phones are, isn't it? I mean, you know, being able to, um, you know, run a window environment, emulate something on a different screen and all that. Um, yeah. We've gone, you know, we really have gone places when I, it comes to I would uh, say, mobile horsepower, really. Yeah, I would say that I wasn't doing, like, any, like, really intensive games or anything. But, yeah, it's still really cool that it can do that. And at least it's the games that, you know, I want to play. And yeah, maybe I will try uh, a PS1 game. Uh, I keep waiting for um, uh, a remastered version of um, Armored Core Master of Arena to come out. Because I love that game too. But um, we'll see. Maybe one day. Now then, uh, the other day I turned on my full backup machine to copy all of my Nextcloud setup and all of my data from it. Um, that one's the one G the one GX, um, with a micro SD card. That's 512 gig. Um, it was going a little slow. So I turned on my travel router out in the garage to speed things up. That worked for a while, but then the whole network dropped in my garage, but just in my garage, the rest of the house was fine. Everything up to my network switch in the garage was down. This led me to assume that it was either the network switch in the garage or the cables leading up to it from inside the house, out around the house, and to the garage. Um, now, I would get a few seconds of connection when I restarted the switch, unplugged it, plugged it back in, but then shortly afterwards, it would drop again. Now, uh, I restarted the routers and the modem and the switch, but nothing was working. 
then I decided to switch around the cables. Um, and when I disconnected my travel router, everything just started working fine. Uh, more testing will be required to see what the actual issue is with the travel router. But um, it's obviously not the cable to the router since I was able to still log directly into the router. So it, it, it's going to be an interesting issue to try and, and dig through. Um, and right at that time that I fixed that issue and, and got the network back up and running, I started getting very bad artifacting on my screens on, on the server in my garage. Um, this kind of leads into the innards because, um, we need more ideas for topics essentially, but, um, I, I, I will explain what all happened there in the innards. Uh, what I ended up doing though, was buying a slightly better portable router, which will give me more time to work on the old one. Uh, I ended up picking up the GL INET GL SFT 1200, which does both 2.4 and 5 gigahertz. Um, it's pretty fast and really stable. Uh, for now I have it set to be an access point. So, um, it, it has no DHC table, DHCP table of its own, and it's providing excellent Wi-Fi in my garage. Later, I plan to test it, um, as a repeater or receiver. It will take the Wi-Fi connection from the rest of the house and turn it into a wired connection to my switch in the garage. I want to see if that'll give me faster connection out there because the guy that ran my cable out to the garage only used cable that was rated for uh, 100 Mbps. So it doesn't completely utilize my 300 up, 300 down. Um, it, it would cost a bit more than I would normally spend on a portable router being $40. And I generally prefer to spend between 15 and 20. But I think the uh, extra Ethernet port, along with the uh, gigabit connections and the faster Wi-Fi band, is worth it since I plan on using it more frequently while still being able to grab it and go on the road with it. Now, I also received a couple of things from Moss in the mail. Uh, Jellycomb trackball mouse with a potentially dodgy right click that I am currently testing. So I, I'm, I'm using it every day and I'm, I'm waiting to see what errors crop up. And also a 17-inch System76 Kudu 3 with a mostly seized hinge on one side. Um, that one I need to strip all the way down and see what's causing the hinge to not move freely or see if I can find a potential replacement. The laptop looks awesome and I'm sure that it runs like a beast. Now from what Moss was saying, it still works and everything. I just haven't plugged it in. Um, the battery is dead. I don't know how long it's charged for, but with a 17 inch laptop, probably not very long, but, um, I will it wait. It really is a beast. It, yeah. It really is a beast. The thing is it's a 2016, uh, I7 chip in it. So it's, uh, four core, uh, eight thread runs really fast. Looks great. Uh, considering it's just a Clevo machine, they did a lot to, to make it really run. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm not going to turn it on or anything until after I get it taken all the way apart and, and see what's causing that hinge to seize. Um, and then I have to find a way to reattach it to both um, the monitor and the uh, the base. It's still attached to the base, but it the it, it has the screws are actually missing. I don't know if they got ripped out or what work I need to do to get them put back in properly on the uh the monitor portion but I, I before i do that i have to figure out what's causing it to see 
And hopefully I'll be able to do that this week since I'll be on vacation. And that's all I got. Boss? Can I ask another question? Sorry. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, yeah, yeah. You, you know, um, after um, the changes yesterday uh, on the developer options for S24, have you noticed any differences? Um, A little bit. It does seem a little bit smoother. Okay. I always find you, you have to do a little bit of tinkering with I- Samsung. Did you, you know, did you almost check like, out almost like a Linux distro? Did you check out that application I told you about? Uh, no, I didn't actually, but I will do now. The one that lets you slide in from the sides to pick various Which, thanks things. Thanks for to reminding do. me. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, sh- I should look into that. I was too busy watching cricket today, to be honest. Ah. Anyway, it's not my bi weekly wandering, it's, it's Moss's bi weekly wanderings, isn't it? Go ahead, Moss. Mike, Mike, we need a mic. Okay. I got a couple of days of work in. I got to play with my Pine Tab 2 a fair bit. It has decent battery life, but some things just would not open. A combination of the experimental status of the device and the school Wi-Fi. It also might have something to do with the unknown Arch version that it's running. Danknicks? Who? Anyhow, I had a guy come over to look at my cheaper guitar, an Alvarez semi-acoustic that I had for sale. He wound up buying my better one, which I really thought he should have, uh, which is an Ibanez full acoustic. Both with uh, both of them have pickups. There was an $85 difference in price. I knew he was financially limited, so I felt bad talking upselling him. I still have two guitars for sale, a six-string semi-acoustic and a 12-string. After thinking about it, I pulled the semi-acoustic from the market, but will sell it to the right buyer if the right buyer shows up. Uh, it has been in the felt community for its entire life, and I kind of would like to keep it in that community. Anyhow, I haven't had much time to do anything beyond personal maintenance. I'm really laying my podcast teams down, leaving most of the infrastructure work to them, including we've even got Bill recruited to do more infrastructure work on uh, Distro Hoppers Digest. It's the hazards, hazards of getting old, I guess, but it doesn't feel good. I did make a $4 sale on my Bandcamp page. I guess that's something. $3.71 after Bandcamp and PayPal got their shares. If you feel the need to spend money, please visit my Bandcamp page, link in the show notes. Most of my music can be downloaded for free if you don't want to pay for it, but I hope you will. I have started to investigate more Fediverse stuff, and I think I have accounts on Friendica, which is bardmoss at foggyminds.social, and maybe Lemmy. I'm not really sure I got approved yet on Lemmy, which is... uh federated version of what reddit might be uh i'm not sure what i'm doing yet so stay tuned that's all i've got and it's magid's turn oh another question for you then moss so you're saying uh this uh the fediverse so this is different to mastodon then it's a different mm-hmm. or is it a mastodon instance or how does it work mastodon is in the fediverse but it is not the okay. fediverse uh friendica is a sort of uh facebook version of something that is also federated Mm -hmm. uh lemmy is a federated uh uh instance well when we get down to check this out i'll have more answers for you okay okay maybe some maybe something for an innards in the future maybe right okay so from a linux perspective i think i finally understood the appeal and usability of arch distros um as as mentioned before, I've got Manjaro running on my Asus ZenBook. I was getting really annoyed with the jank and the paper cuts with using it. However, I can see why people use it. Software. 
yes, Self-Flow may not be officially supported, or you might not be able to get a .deb or a .rpm uh, like you can with Debian Ubuntu Fedora. Maybe there is a flat pack, maybe there's a snap, maybe there isn't. But you get it all in the AUR, like everything. I was looking for some, you know, crypto wallets, and I was able to find them all in the AUR. I might still distro hub, but at least I learned something. Um, I suppose the, the AUR is one of these things of, with great power comes great responsibility. Um, and um, But yeah, as I said, I finally understood. With um, great wonks come great wonkiness. <laughs> very true, very true. Speaking of a distro hopping, I was planning on going over to Mint on that Zenbook. Uh, for someone who is on Mintcast and spent over a decade on Linux, as I've mentioned before, I've not really used Mint a whole lot recently. I realized that even my recent forays into 21.2 and Ferran OS have been on my desktop rig. One of the reasons I shied away from Mint and Cinnamon in particular was a perceived lack of uh, touchscreen and touchpad gestures. And I do like my touchpad gestures, even more than the touchscreen stuff, actually, the touchpad gestures. I've got used to a lot of the ones that are in uh, GNOME. Well, Mint have been doing a lot of work on that on that front. And even though it's uh, it's X11 and not Wayland, Wayland has an experimental session, but it doesn't have the uh, touchpad gestures. Um, yeah, they're doing a lot of work on it. So I decided to download the latest 21.3 ISO. I went for the Edge ISO as it's a lot newer than the normal version. I mean, I suppose I could wait till Mint 22, uh, but that's probably going to hit in May. So it's a good few months away. Um, and I'm sure I'll get bored before then. Speaking of booting ISOs, I finally got around to trying Ventoy, which I know we mentioned in a check this out a couple of months ago. Um, I don't, but I only really actually tried it out this week. Oh man, it's brilliant. It makes distro hopping a breeze um, and trying things out. I well recommend it. It's a nice little, nice project. I brought that up on this show before it even showed up on Jupiter Broadcasting. We've been talking about yeah, that for no, quite it's, a while. Um, as I said, it's just, uh, I know we. I, I finally got around to using uh, using it. I really, I really like it. Really good project. I've not been too well this week. Uh, I had to take a few days off due to dizziness. Uh, I think I had a viral cold or something, and then it affected my ears. It gave me something called labyrinthitis. Um, and it almost caused me to have an accident on the way to work. Um, and I actually had to make a decision while I was driving to stop and say, it's not safe for me to drive and go and, and go back home. And I thought to myself, if I'm not safe to drive because of dizziness, do you really want me looking after your loved ones? So I rang the department and I said, this is what's happened. Um, they were okay about it, I think. They don't um, care. They just want you to have a pulse right. and be there. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, I've not actually been back to work yet since. I mean, going back tomorrow. Um, Labyrinthitis, does that mean you start sounding like David Bowie? Oh, Lord. Now, that is not that is a reference that really <laughs> ages you, Moss. <laughs> no, it doesn't. I, I I caught that one. Yeah, you're old as well. You're my okay. age. Anyway, but you call me old, so I'll call you old. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. So, um, speaking of which, I've got my monthly 24-hour shift tomorrow, which um, I'm not looking forward to. I'm sure it will be fine. It nearly always is fine, um, but it, it still um, gets my anxiety levels up. Um. Had an in, well, I call it interesting in in my boring life. Interesting, uh, IT related thing. Uh, one of the private hospitals I work at. So I do the um, private sector in the UK is much smaller than the um, 
the state. But we do have private hospitals and people do do stuff with insurance and stuff like that. And so I got um, uh, once in a while, I'll get a phone call from the private hospital saying, are you free on X day? Can you come and uh, do an operation? He requested me because I work with him in the NHS as well. We work quite well as a team. Um, and um, so I went there and uh, there they've just implemented a paperless electronic record and prescribing, drug prescribing. And it always, and it was the first day that they were, it was going live. It always amazes me how rubbish these software solutions are. I mean, this wasn't the worst I've used by a long shot. It wasn't too bad, actually. But how is it 2024 and we still have these challenges, you know? Um, and the worry about it is that Maybe not so much for myself, but I do did notice that for a lot of the nursing staff, they were really struggling with it, and they weren't paying attention to the patient. They were paying more attention to, okay, how do I press this? How do I do that? How do I do this? Oh, we need to get someone to come and show. Oh, this isn't logging in. This isn't logging out. That kind of thing. Blame um, Microsoft. Yeah. I mean, but it's like sometimes you do have very good solutions. So... Uh, in the maternity department at the NHS hospital I work at, they have this thing called Vaginet, which is basically based on iOS. It's on iPads. They've got iPads in there. And you put in all the details of the patient and you know their follow-up and what kind of birth plan they have and stuff like that. And it actually works really well because it's a mobile-first type of thing. A lot of the other stuff is really, it's a Windows desktop thing that, you've been told told to use on a touchscreen or on a tablet or something like that. And it's just, yeah, it's never as good. I did once think to myself, you know, there's probably a market in this for a good Linux or open source thing, but knowing the uh, way that IT procurement works, it's probably not worth the hassle. Definitely not worth, uh, definitely not worth it from a financial perspective. Um, I've managed to sell most of the gear that I had for sale. The phones and tablet have gone. Uh, the laptop and earbuds haven't. I've realized that you lose a lot of money on these. And I think that's because of release cycles. You know, these things get out of date very quickly. Um, so like, for example, the uh, the Asus ZenBook, you know, it's an 11th gen Intel i5, which is perfectly good. But we're on to 13th gen. We'll probably be on to even more. And so when you actually get around to, you know, passing it off you know you, you you're you're lucky if you get 50 percent of the value you know um same with the uh the earbuds that i've got um because I've, you know every six months there's a new version uh of them it i'm starting to wonder whether there's just it's better if i just keep them and just use them and hand them down to kids and things like that rather than um actually get some money out of it uh phones and tablets fair enough but yeah maybe not uh, laptops and earbuds um i'm really enjoying the galaxy s24 ultra is it worth the its price probably not because it is eye-wateringly expensive but the whole package works quite well and um i i really like the camera uh, i really wish i'd had this now when i went to morocco i would have got some really good pictures but hey ho um outside of tech i've uh enjoying i'm enjoying the pastings that the conservatives are getting in the by-elections uh hashtag schadenfreude uh, the kids had a week off school this week, which uh, they seem to spend most of it in bed or watching TV, which to be fair is exactly what I would do in the situation and it's what I did in the situation. So fair enough. Um, those who know me know that I, you know, 
I, I do I do like a good uh, net, a box set, and so I've got into a um, Irish gangster uh, series on the B- on BBC iPlayer called Kin. It's not exactly original. It's you know gangsters and family and all that sort of stuff. But it's really fantastically acted. You know, it's got some real good actors. Charlie Cox who played Daredevil um, in the uh, 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 you know in the Daredevil series. Kieran Hines Aiden and will Gillen, be again shortly. In. Yes. Um, Kieran Hines and Aidan Gillen, who are both in Game of Thrones, um, real quality acting. Actually, I also started Mr. and Mrs. Smith on uh, Prime Video. That was one for me and the wife to start watching. Um, it was a bit slow, and um, it did make me miss the Netflix thing of you can increase the speed to like one point two or one point five or whatever. It was just like, just hurry up, will you? Just hurry up. I've got all day. Uh, maybe I need to develop some patience. <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> now, yeah. um, um, I'm going to add something yeah, right on. there. Now, Netflix allows you to do up to like 1.5x. Um, mm-hmm. If you're using a, a like Chrome, you can add the uh, uh, Plex uh, extension, and that will, any video source, it'll allow you to go up to 2x. Oh, okay. So even if it is mm-hmm. on Amazon, mm-hmm. the way Mr. and Mrs. Smith is, you could go up to two X. Okay, I'm gonna check that out. Uh, Corey Taylor, the uh, lead singer of Slipknot and Stone Sour, uh, had a new album at the end of last year, which I've been listening to. It's pretty good. I've been listening to some Hallocene as well, which is a covers band. Um, they do a really good version of uh, Billie Eilish's "Bury a Friend." Um, I do like heavy metal covers of pop songs. Hallocene um, and Encore are awesome. Yeah, uh, who else was it? There's a couple of other good ones as well. Uh, there's a Russian one, Sershin and Zatskia. Um, and then there's a guitar one, um, Paul Roland, where he will basically, um, e- even, you know, metal and rock songs, you know, he will have his own kind of flavor to them and add a bit more solos or whatever. Um, so I, I do like that. Eric July. Kind of stuff. Um, <clears throat> if any of you can give me some more music recommendations. Yeah, Eric uh, July. You know, send them on. Come on, you know you want to. Okay. Didn't 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 I just do that in my bi-weekly wanderings? Ha ha. Eric July, eh? Let's have a look at that. Apparently Pearl Jam have got a new album coming out soon as well. Which will be uh uh which will be good, I think. Um anyway, I think that's the end of my bi weeklies. And that ends our bi weeklies. Let's move on. Now we move to Linux innards, which is Joe. Um, this week's Linux innards, this is to go over the process that led me to nuke and pave my server, not once, but twice, and to cover some of the applications that I consider essential in my setup because I installed them the second time. Also to cover what worked and what didn't. Um, I'm not sure what actually caused the issue the other day. I started getting some severe artifacting in Chrome again. Um, like I I'd be on a web page and I'd scroll over something and suddenly I would see my desktop, um, was the problem that I was having. And, and then at one point the entire screen was going black. Um, this is after getting a new graphics card from Bill. Yes, it was an older graphics card, but still very powerful and greatly appreciated. Uh, the artifacting wasn't too much of a problem. Then suddenly, um, 
my resolution on, on both my monitors was way off and very low. Also, both monitors had the same image and the displays couldn't, the <clears throat> GNOME displays couldn't change the resolution or separate the monitors. It just thought I had one monitor connected in those two ports and was just outputting the same thing to both of them. And I, if I switched the second monitor away to view my work computer, then it would not be detected when I switched back and I'd only have the one monitor. Now I was able to put a temporary fix in for the resolution by adjusting the grub to have a specific resolution at boot time. And that made things usable during the troubleshooting process. <clears throat> now, since the computer was not detecting the type or resolution of the monitors, the first thing that I decided to do was check the cables and the adapters. Um, I had gotten a couple of extra display port to HDMI adapters and some extra HDMI cables, but that made no change. Um, my concern at that point was either that the graphics driver or the power supply had a hardware issue, but since there's very little I could do about that, I put it on the back burner for the rest of the testing process. The next thing that I tested was the drivers to the extent that I could. I was looking through the logs to see if there was any kind of error. Using XRander, I could see that it looked like the drivers had not loaded the way they probably should have. I spent several hours digging through system logs and trying to unload and reload modules and even tried to use the AMD GPU drivers from AMD. These were giving me the same errors that they were last time I nuked in PAVE and where it could not install AMD GPU DKMS. Also in looking through the drivers that were provided from AMD, it doesn't look like the specific model was included. There were some that were similar, but the specific one was not listed in any of their documentation. Um, I decided to try an upgrade to 21.3 following the upgrade path. And while the upgrade worked without any issues, I still had the same problems. I was hoping that the new kernel would correct the problem, but it did not. Still not being certain um, that it wasn't a hardware issue, I decided that the easiest way to make sure it wasn't was to load up a live disk and see what happened to the monitor. So I downloaded the most recent version of Mint and loaded it up onto my Ventoy stick and gave it a test. Thank you, Moss, for that recommendation. Ventoy is awesome. The hardware was fine. Everything worked as it should in, in live in, image. But uh, by this point, I'm getting a little frustrated with the drivers and decided to do a nuke and pave and restore. I log back into Mint and I make sure that my backups are recent, including my applications and the VM that I use. The VM needed to be copied to an external drive so that it'd be copied back later when things were up and running. I prefer to run my VM directly from my M.2 stick because it's just faster and works better. But if I'm reformatting, I need to have it saved to an external media. This time I also made sure to copy my FS tab as I forgot last time and it made things a little bit more difficult to get it set back up, at least in regards to a lot of the automation that I have. Well, I load back into the live ISO and do a full nuke and pay. This went well. Everything loaded back up and the monitors were working as they should. Next thing to do was use the built-in tools from Mint to do a full restore. First the applications and then the files, including all the configuration files for all the applications. The nice thing about the restore tool is that it will tell you which applications it was not able to restore because they are not in the repos, which would give me a nice starting point to getting things running the way they were before. Things like Chrome and Audio Bookshelf and a few others. I made sure to put those back before I did the files restore, and this allowed me to continue from right, right where I left off with things like Chrome. Um, <clears throat> at this point, I also restored the FS tab 
in order to put all of my various mount points back where they belong so that all of my automation would just plain work. I made a mistake when doing it and restored the whole file instead of copying and pasting the portion that had the external mount points. This broke my boot, um, which I found out about shortly after when I restarted the PC to make sure that everything still worked. Big, big obvious mistake on my part. Now, I was still early in the process, but um, I tried to fix my mistake anyway and restore the other FS tab, but I guess there was another error somewhere uh, because it would still only load into the command line. Sardex would only throw permission errors even when running as root. So I decided to go a different way and start the whole process over with another new campaign. Uh, without doing a restore this time, but building everything back up again from scratch except for the VM. So after I nuked and paved again, I started installing applications as I thought I would need them. Um, VLC comes first. I almost do this by reflex when I install a new system. It has been my favorite video player for years and is also a great tool for testing things like cameras. Now I know a lot of people have problems with VLC because it comes with a bunch of uh, proprietary codecs, but it works and it's a lot more than just a video player and I will keep using it as long as it's available. Uh, next I installed Chrome and logged in so that I could have my bookmarks and be able to test as I started setting up various services again. Uh, then came all the communications applications that I used so that I could tell everybody about, you know, how I had to nuke and pave twice. That was Telegram, Discord, WhatsApp. Although I did switch to making a WhatsApp web app a while back, and it seems to be much more stable than the WhatsApp desktop application. Um, next, I installed SnapD. Yes, Snap. I tend to use what works and what makes things easy. I installed Snap so that I could install Nextcloud, but I kept getting errors with any Snap-based application that I attempted to install, and my research did not yield any kind of results. Uh, so because I had a lot of other things to do, I moved on to installing Nextcloud using the community script. I usually don't like to install from other people's scripts, but I thought I would give it a try. Uh, something did not work with that as well, and I ended up installing Docker and running it from there. I was uh, able to point it back to the old folder for Nextcloud that I had on an external drive. Um, now this did cause some issues because of the volume of things that were being copied back and forth, but what can you do? I mean, there's like 80 or 90 gig worth of stuff on my Nextcloud. So it took a little while to write it all there. Now I have not used Docker for a while, but I did add the commands to make it run every time I restart and every time it has an issue. I also needed to relearn how to exec commands so that I could go back and add the trusted domains. And I've included those commands, docker run d p 8080 colon 80 amd64 slash nextcloud and docker update restart always and then the image number from docker. And you can get that using, what is it, docker ps tac a. Um, and then I added docker exec Tac tac user www tac data uh, condescending underscore more yeah yeah the name of uh, my image and then config system and then the trusted domains command that you would normally use with um, nextcloud.otc or OCC yeah um, <clears throat> now when it comes to SnapD anything I tried to install with SnapD did not work and was throwing a random error, even after a restart, because I figured it was just a user permission problem. So I did restart my machine and I um, tried installing again, but that didn't work. 
But then when I was writing my show notes, I went and tried to install uh, a random snap and it worked just fine. I installed, I believe it was a snap store at that point and it started working. So I don't know what changed and I don't know what the issue was at the time. Now, after all of that, I installed audio bookshelf. Uh, for this, I was able to add and use the repos for the install. It means that I will have to redo a lot of the matching that I have done previously to get the books, um, actual titles and get them, uh, sorted by series and things like that. I, I'm going to need to figure out a way to keep a copy of all that. Uh, I know that there is a location under like slash lib or something. I'll have to look again and make sure that I copy that back and forth when I do this type of thing. I also probably should have used the Docker for this since um, I'm already running the Docker anyway for Nextcloud, and it's definitely something I'll keep in mind for next time. Uh, next, I rebuilt the FS tab using just the parts of the old FS tab that I needed and um, restarted the system to make sure that everything worked. This time, everything was good. Um, I then installed the flat pack of Nextcloud desktop along with flat seal so that I can make sure that it had the correct permissions. With that done, I downloaded the app images for Joplin and um, <clears throat> Cura Arachne beta two and started restoring all of my custom settings in Cura. Now, the reason I'm using Cura Arachne beta two, even though it's an older engine is because the current graphics card that I have um, does not support, uh, what was it, OpenGL 2, it only supports OpenGL 1, and the newest versions of Cura will not support that. Now, for um, Cura, the the things that I have to do is make sure that the fan settings are correct and the speed was, it, the fan settings were correct and adjusted down by 50% and that the speed was increased from, I think it starts out at 75, I increased it to 150, and I also had to redo the retraction settings that I found works best for PLA with this printer. Now, um, <clears throat> I also download I, the Joplin I use for note taking, journaling, and calorie tracking. Cura is obviously used for uh, slicing 3D prints. Joplin worked pretty easy this time with a lot less fuss than the last time I installed it. And I was able to get all my notes back from my backup of Nextcloud and even delete the items that were causing me so many problems last time around. Now, this time I installed VirtualBox 7.1 and moved the clone of the VM back onto the M.2 drive for faster access and kicked it off. Um, it was just working as it should and seeing all the storage locations that it should because of the FS tab fixing that I had done. So basically off and running with that just the way that it was before. Now, last time I installed VirtualBox, I had some rather harsh problems with the graphics drivers that required me to downgrade um, to the 6.2 version or something like that. But this time, no problems were encountered and everything just worked. My VM clone started right up. And because, like I said, it could see all the storage locations, everything's working as it was before. After that, I had to set up my file mover automation, move all the .torrent files from the downloads folder to the watch folder location. Um, that is after I changed the default download location to an external drive the way that it was before in order to not use up all of my M.2 with pointless downloads. Um, then add another file mover for the same stuff located in a folder with the next cloud so that I can start the process from anywhere. So I download a, um, a .torrent for a mint ISO and I dump it into next cloud. It automatically finds it and it starts the download for me while I'm at 
at work or on the road, and it's just there when I get home. Then set up all the automations based on where the files from the downloader get loaded to. The VM only has access to limited locations, so the rest is handled by Cronta. Um, I ha have to be able to separate all those Linux ISOs somehow. Now, next, uh, I install some of the things that I use less often, but I still use with some regularity. Um, KDE Connect, I use this to control my computer from my phone. It's good when I'm using my exercise bike or my gazelle so that I can move ahead in videos, uh, shut things down, open things up. Um, Mate Desktop. Um, I, yes, I use Mate Desktop with either X2Go or Chrome Remote Desktop. X2Go Server and Client allows me to access all of my other computers graphically and access my server from remote. Installing this also installs OpenSSH server, which I use for SSH and for SSHFS, which is fuse mounting. I did need to pull up the old backup of all the things from the previous flash home to get my SSH files, so I don't break automation on the other systems, and by that I mean I had to pull the RSA keys and put them into the new location. But because of the changes, I do need to log into each of the remote systems that I use and then log back into my server so that I can clear the key and accept the changes. I also installed Chrome Remote Desktop. Um, it's the only remote application that I have found that works well from an Android phone and on Dex. I am still looking for another solution because I'm not a big fan of allowing Chrome that much access to my system. But until I find something else, that's what I have to use. I also installed... SERCPY. Installing this also means installing ADB, which then allows for wireless ADB. This allows me to bring up my phone screen on my computer and control it using my keyboard and mouse. Which, um, you know, I know you can do that with a Windows system. I think you have to have a cable and it'll bring up a version of DEX. And this does not bring up a version of DEX, but it does allow me to, like, not take my uh, hands off the keyboard and mouse when I receive a phone call while I'm working. I just scroll over and control my screen right there from my computer. Um, then I installed OBS Studio. I use this for streaming to YouTube to cover the stream when Bill is not available, much like today. Um, I also installed DroidCam, which I have used extensively. Um, I use this when I'm feeling lazy and don't want to go get my webcam out of the other room and just end up using my phone. Now, V4L2 loopback. This is a very important driver used by both web, by DroidCam and OBS in order to create a virtual camera input. And I, am, I will be putting in crontab scripts to reload these modules on every boot. It was also a bit of a pain finding the correct way to adjust the resolution so that it actually looks. The mod is included with the install of DroidCam, or at least a version of it is, but you also need to include some utils in order to be able to use it properly. Now, after finding it in the DroidCam folder, you can run the command in here, which is a patch p1, and then the path to the source, and then <clears throat> the path to the actual file. And then you need to do an apt install for VL v4l2 utils and an apt install for the v4l to loopback utils. And then you can set the size using V4L2 loopback tax CTL, set caps, video XRAW format I420, width equals 1280, height equals 720, and then dev, and then the video that you had set it for in the previous command. Um, 
which is the utils install is actually what gives you CTL and allows you to adjust the size. And I think there's another way to do it um, using just some of the config files, but this is what I found and it worked. And those will be added to my, um, well, you also need to use sudo mod probe v4l2 loopback in order to uh, load that. And then I think you have to adjust that to actually include the, um, or no, the other, one of the other commands, I'll have to look again, sets the uh, <clears throat> video number. And then this is what makes the images sense to the computer 1280 by 720. And it looks a lot cleaner. And then like I said, I'm going to fix my cron tab with it. So that way I don't have to redo it every time I want to use my uh, phone as a webcam. Now, after that, I installed Mumble, which I use for a couple of the other podcasts that I do. And I installed Audacity for audio editing. Now, I also installed Barrier to use along with my 1GX, which was hooked up next to my main computer for while the install process was going on. Um, I connected that to my small portable monitor that's right there that I've been using for Dex and the Pi Zero Arcade. And that worked really well. And um, I did have to for a while, um, while I was waiting for the um, um, new portable router to come in, I did have to pull out a um, USB to Ethernet adapter to keep the connection stable enough out there in the garage. But... Um, <clears throat> Now, even with just the Wi-Fi, it works great. All of this does make me wonder if the problem with my old graphics card wasn't just a programmatical issue. And I'm wondering if I should switch back to it and test it out and get the updated drivers. This graphics card that Bill sent me um, just doesn't seem to have any support going for it, even though it is a much faster, much higher end um, graphics card. And, and Really, that's it. Do you guys got any questions? I was hoping you'd interrupt me more during that. Uh, no, I did have one question, um, which might be a really stupid one. Um, what's your VM for? So you've got a VM which you've got saved, and then you know you've got automations with it. What, what do you actually use it for? Um, downloading ISOs. Um, it, it, it's actually set up with a VPN, so any search that uh, I do. Um, if it's related to anything medical or about myself or anything like that, that I don't want, you know, my, my ISP or, or Google being able to say, yeah, this, this guy has this, that, and the other. Um, so like anything I do and in, in regards to searching about research for the testosterone replacement therapy that I have, I put on there because I don't want ads. Okay. I don't want ads yeah. in regards to that. Yeah. So anything like that. Um, also it, it does download, um, all my dot torrents and that is through a VPN, but yeah, you know, completely legal stuff. Okay. Obviously yeah, all the Linux ISOs you need to download. Right. Uh, for all the yeah, distro. And the other thing I was going to say was, um, uh, KD connect. Um, uh, I've been finding recently it doesn't work as well. Um, I don't know whether that's, uh, an issue with the, because I've been using, predominantly with my android phone or so i don't know if it's my phone that's the issue but um i was going to say one of the things you can use instead of that is the local send i think we talked about it a couple of months ago um you might find that quite useful does that for, uh, provide you know, transferring files and stuff oh well no I, I don't use kde to transfer files the only thing i use um kde connect for is the uh mouse and keyboard functionality okay fine 
Yeah, if I, if I want to... Do you use anything for transferring files? Yeah, Nextcloud. Oh, okay. Fine. I, I will dump it into my Nextcloud location. Like direct? No. Because I must say, having now having an almost complete Samsung ecosystem, you, their quick share thing that they've got works really quite well. I, I've between, heard wonders. You know, phone and... Um, yeah, um, and e- e- uh, Google's nearby share as well is also quite uh, useful. Um, Local Send was one I think um, when we had Infinity Galactic on, he mentioned it, um, and uh, I found that's quite useful. So it might be something you know if you ever, um, yeah, if you ever need to transfer stuff, might be something that's useful, especially with the server. Uh, I find Droid Cam really buggy, you know. Um, I've never ever got it to work properly. I'm giving up now. Well, it's a shame, really, because well, it's by far the best webcam I've got. <laughs> yeah. No, it took it took it took a little while because like the the standard Droid Cam function um, isn't working anymore for some reason for me. Like I can't con- just enter my phone's IP address and and have it connect with Droid Cam turned on on the phone like I used to be able to. And, um, <clears throat> you do need a solid connection, but, uh, you have to use, um, the phone as the server and, and then enter the IP address of the, uh, the server into the phone and, and hit connect. And that works. And it, it's been really smooth every time I've done it. So at least recently, especially with the adjusted size, because before, you know, I had the, the whole letterboxing on the sides the black lines on the sides so now with the adjusted resolution it's it's much better okay does that about wrap it up uh, unless you guys got any more questions it'll be a short show i don't know <laughs> it could be i i forgot one thing to ask to ask what is the actual um specs on that uh on this uh box i don't know if you mentioned it and i missed I, it i didn't i didn't um what AMD, what was it, the 3600, the AMD 5, 3600, 3300, 3600, yeah. And then the graphics card is um, the AMD Fire Pro W7100, and it's Mm -hmm. got 32 gigs of RAM, and Chrome uses most of that most of the time. Yeah, um... Do you do you have a NAS as well? No. Or is, um, or is this like your main server? Th- this is this is my main server. It, it's got uh okay. hold on. Um twelve uh sixteen uh twenty eight uh thirty. It's got um thirty one terabytes of storage in it. Flipping thirty one terabytes. Just a little system. Yeah. Yeah, just a small thing just there. Yeah. I, I don't yeah. That's it, cool. That's yeah. Cool. Have you got them all as raid? No. No. Okay. They're they're individual. Um and like I said, I, I use a lot of SSHFS. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to use that. But um I I I started using it when when Samba was really, really terrible on Linux and I just never really stopped. Um and I've set up automation in the past on a lot of my, you know, laptops and things. So that way, whenever it connects to a network, it will automatically run the commands to um, 
connect to the fuse mount, which gives me access to all of the storage on my server from a remote location and then set up the automation so that if I lose my network connection, it automatically uh, terminates um, the, uh, the fuse mount because I was getting errors from that. And, um, then once it comes back again, obviously it reconnects. And like I said, it's like, you know, um, having that 31, uh, terabytes of storage accessible from all of my machines. Like they were attached locally. It, it's really kind of awesome. Okay. Well, that about wraps it up for our Linux innards and let's move along. Vibrations from the ether. We got one email in from Brise. Says, hi, Joe. The guy who started the Mintcast pod mentioned on the Changelog podcast that it was still going. From Mintcast, I then found your podcast and email. I'm looking to change careers. Moving into the Linux space seems more aligned with my values. I am reading working in public at the moment to understand open source better. There's a bewildering amount of resources and content out there. Looking through it can feel quite unstructured. I was wondering if you had a previous pod that might have covered this or know of other resources or just have some advice you can share. I'm in my mid-40s now. For health reasons, I should probably try and work from home most of the time. I understand it will take a few years to build the skills, qualifications, and experience that I'll need. I have funds for training, etc., and I have about 20 hours a week. I'm in the UK. I presume the support role might be my best chance to get my foot in the door. Maybe I could move on to an infrastructure job later. I presume part-time contract work might be a good starting point. I left the IT industry 11 years ago. My career was mostly DB design implemented on SQL Server. There is a lot of T-SQL work, data cleansing and reporting, a lot of performance tuning too. I love set-based thinking. Completed a major data migration project. Toward the end of that phase of my career, there was a lot of people management, managing outsourced dev projects in India and in Poland, and working as the scrum master for the local team in the UK. But I'd had enough of the corporate world and went off and did a simple physical job that paid well enough. My .NET dev skills are beyond rust. Now, I still remember the days when we rolled out Cruise, and I remember using MS Visual Source Safe before switching to Git. So that's a bit about me to rotate back. Any advice you could share would be deeply appreciated. Regards, Bob. Okay, Bob. No, I, I spent quite a bit of time thinking about this and wondering how to, you know, bring all of this forward to you. Um, if you can get your idle certification, that is a, a great place to start. Um, I T I L. Um, I do have some friends that, um, working in the UK, a lot of the tech support moved out of the UK because it was just cheaper to, um, get it elsewhere. So a lot of your big businesses were kind of moving out. But, um, I'm, I'm sure that, sure that there's still some there that you can find. Um, I would say if you're looking for work from home and you're looking for contract work, um, Tata consultancy is everywhere and they were good to me. I've heard horrible things about them in India. Like they were like 
terrible in India. I don't know how they are in the UK, but they're good to people in the US. So give them a look and see what you can find. Um, try looking for like level one support positions, but only at companies that also provide level two support. Because if you're good enough at the level one stuff when you get there and level one, uh, I would hate doing it full time. And I did hate doing it full time because it's basically help desk. But the whole goal there is to go from help desk to level two support where you're analyzing errors, monitoring and actually fixing things. And then as you get good again at, you know, the different types of SQL is extremely helpful in this instance. As you get good again at SQL, or if you learn Python or even um, Java, a lot of companies look for Java. Um, you can move up to hopefully what would be an L3 position, which is actually um, either a developer or um, another form of support that also does development, but only fixing other people's code. So it's something to look at, but I think that the starting point there for you would be the uh, ITIL certification and then getting on with a good contracting company. Now, as Also, Bob, if you're interested, uh, all of the distros, many of which are based in the UK, would probably love to have someone on, uh, get additional staff, uh, whether they can pay or not is an issue, but some of the larger ones like Canonican, canonical easily he could that was just something that came to my mind go ahead joe yeah when it comes to working in, in the um open source area i don't know much i mean i work for a bank so you don't get much less open source than that but yeah uh i'm probably not the one that to ask about that so that that's the information that I have. And that's all the uh, vibrations we have for this episode. Let's move on. In Check This Out, we have one item here from me. There's a really long, detailed, highly informative, and extremely well-written article explaining the Fediverse on The Verge. If you're interested, you should check it out. There's a link in the show notes. That's yeah, for you I too, will, Majid. Will look at that. <laughs> so, housekeeping announcements. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mintcast. If you see something you'd like to hear about, tell us. Send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. Join us live on YouTube. Post at the Mintcast subreddit chat with us on Telegram and Discord, or post directly at https colon slash slash mintcast.org. Our next episode will be 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Sunday, March 3rd, 2024. We have a link in the show notes to, to get that converted to your time zone. Our next roundtable live stream is 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Saturday, February 24th, 2024. Again, a link in the show notes to get that converted to your time zone. Live stream information is at mintcast.org slash live stream. Eh, gotta say it right. Mintcast.org slash live stream. 
To wrap things up, Joe, where can we hear more of you? Well, if you like the sound of my voice, I'm on a couple other podcasts. I'm on uh, the Linux Link Tech Show, which you can find at tllts.org. I'm on the Linux Lugcast, uh, linuxlugcast.com. Um, you can send me an email, jb at mintcast.org, or you can buy me a coffee on Kofi. Moss. You can hear me every week on Full Circle Weekly News, uh, every approximately month on DistroHopper's Digest. You can email me at bardmoss at pm.me. My mastodon is at zyvola at hosttalks.social. Bill couldn't make it today. He's on special assignment, but you can reach him, bill at mintcast.org, bill underscore h on discord, at wchauser3 at fostodon.org on mastodon. Also, his other podcasts are Linux OTC and Three Fat Truckers. We have links in the show notes. Majid? So you can email me on drmajid at mintcast.org. I'm technically still on X, Twitter, whatever, as atypical doctor 870 but don't bother. I'm not going to reply. Uh, I'm also uh, atypical doctor on Instagram and the atypical doctor podcast on Spotify. And I also uh, come on the Linux OTC podcast as well. Excellent. And Eric will be back next episode, we hope. You can hear and see him on this and the Linux OTC podcasts, as well as DistroHopper's Digest, Linux Saloon, and Linux Lugcast streams. If you'd like to get in touch with him, you can reach him at eric at mintcast.org. His Discord is eric underscore Adams. His Telegram is eric Adams. His Matrix is in the show notes. His Mastodon is in the show notes uh, at ericadams at fostodon.org. Before we leave, we want to make sure to acknowledge some of the people who make Mintcast possible. Somebody, for our audio editing, it might be Bill. Archive.org for hosting our audio files. Hobstar for our logo. InitRD for the animated Discord logo. Londoner for our time syncs and various other contributions, like telling us if we sound okay over the internet. Bill for hosting the server which runs our website, website maintenance, and Nextcloud server on which we host our show notes and raw audio. And the Linux Mint development team for the fine distro we love to talk about. Thanks, Thanks Clem. Clem. And Po. This has been another episode of the Mintcast podcast. The show notes for this episode are at mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. Join us in our Discord channel and our Telegram group. You can find more information about Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. Thanks to Interfection for our theme music, and thanks for listening to this episode of Mintcast. Mintcast.